1: new season out on spotify soon
0: due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes listener discretion is advised this episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive we advise extreme caution for listeners under 13
1: hi i'm greg polson
0: and i'm vanessa richardson
1: today we take a deep dive into the life of dwight york the leader of the cult, the United nuabian Nation of Moors, also known at various times as the Ansar Pure Sufi, or the Holy Tabernacle Ministries.
0: If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com.
1: And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening.
0: In part one of our two-part episode, we'll focus solely on Dwight York, his early life and influences, and how York went from a New York street kid to the cult leader who received a 135-year prison sentence for multiple offenses, including child molestation.
1: In part two, we'll broaden our focus from York to his followers, the Nuwabians. We'll learn more about their daily life in the cult, their created pseudo-language Nubic and followers' belief that they are both a superior race and the descendants of aliens, waiting to be beamed up to another planet. We'll learn why York's followers believed in him so strongly that they were willing to follow him all the way from Bushwick in bustling Brooklyn to the sleepy town of Eatonton, Georgia. And we're going to try and figure out why many of these followers continue to stand by him, even after he's been imprisoned for child molestation. Things are dream My mind Things are dream No, you aren't dreaming. The soothing, soulful voice you hear belongs to the man the FBI once feared would instigate the next Waco massacre.
0: That man's name is Dwight York. In the 1980s, he was Dr. York, an R&B funk singer and music producer. But he was also the leader of a group that would eventually be known as the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors, whose members believe they are descended from extraterrestrials who settled in ancient Egypt. Unlike other humans, York said he has a barathery gland located in the hippocampus, which gave him telepathic powers. Naturally, no other human has this because the doctors, according to York, conspired to remove it upon birth.
1: His followers, who have numbered as high as 5,000 in the U.S. alone, believe they will gain similar abilities when they are raptured back to their home planet, bringing the alien race back to their former glory. They refer to York as their savior, but he's also gone by several names, including Dr. Malachi Z. York, Rabboni, Master Teacher, The Lamb, and Chief Black Eagle.
0: But who was the man behind this list of titles?
1: Dwight York was born on June 26, 1945, in Boston, Massachusetts to Miriam C. Williams and David York Sr. He was the third of five siblings. However, York claimed in his 1989 scroll, the Ansar cult rebuttal to the slanderers, that his real father was Al-Hadi Rahman Al-Mahdi, a descendant of Sudanese royalty, whom his mother had met on a trip to Egypt in 1944. He claimed he was the product of their affair.
0: But other than York's own word and Nuwabian legend, there's no outside evidence of this.
1: Part of the reason for this obscured origin is York's own shame in his biological father, David Sr. His father was rumored to have been a pimp and a gangster, in and out of prison. His family wasn't that religious, and York was embarrassed that his upbringing didn't match the image he created.
0: David Sr. was York's first glimpse of a man in power. It's possible his father's behavior normalized abusing women, making York's fall into crime inevitable.
1: Vanessa's going to take over the psychology here and throughout the episode. It's important to note that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show.
0: Street gangs may have appealed to young York because of the way they make initiates feel important and provide a sense of community.
1: Well, it makes sense. Yet, despite the lure of street gangs, York seemingly attempted to live a normal, crime-free life. He got a job at a local antique store and married the store owner's daughter, Dorothy May Johnson, when he was 18. She was his first and only legal wife. They went on to have six children over the years.
0: But marital bliss didn't last for long. He soon found himself in trouble in June 1964, when he was arrested for the statutory rape of a 13-year-old girl. FBI investigators later saw this as a sign of York's predilection for preying on children.
1: But back in 1964, the legal ramifications for raping children weren't what they are now. York received only probation and a suspended sentence, a second chance. A second chance he squandered. Indeed. A few months later, in October, he violated his probation with a gun charge. Now, Vanessa, why do you think he gambled with his freedom?
0: Well, as we've seen with past cult leaders, many of them have narcissistic personalities. They believe that they don't answer to any higher authority because they are that authority. I'd hazard a guess that York saw the 1964 slap on the wrist as the natural sign of his invincibility, infallibility even. But in 1965, his luck ran out. He received a three-year prison sentence. In prison, he found a calling, a brotherhood of sorts.
1: He, like many other people locked away, used his prison sentences to seek religious guidance. York followed in the footsteps of Malcolm X, who joined the Nation of Islam, or NOI, during his time in prison. Whether it's in Providence or Mississippi, there is not a black man or woman in America who has intelligence, who hasn't gone somewhere and around whites and felt like he was a social leper.
0: The NOI helped inmates like York feel less alone and gave them a sense of purpose.
1: But the Nation of Islam also held controversial views about race, Adherents of the Nation of Islam believed all races were descended from black people. Some took this further to claim that white people were genetically inferior to black people.
0: Now while there's some evidence of Europe's negative influence in the form of chattel slavery, colonialism, and imperialism, the Nation of Islam took black supremacy to the edge of fantasy.
1: You're talking about Dr. Jakob?
0: Oh yes, the good old doctor. The man NOI adherents believed created white people in a lab thousands of years ago to represent evil in contrast to the righteous
1: black race. But then they escaped and took over the world.
0: It sounds insane, but you have to understand the psychology of the inmate. When you're in prison, you're isolated. Your loved ones don't visit or mail letters, and even if you're someone like York, whose marriage remained intact during his prison stay, maybe you feel isolated from yourself. Captivity makes people feel inhuman. And I'm sure losing control of your day-to-day schedule, having people tell you when to eat and go to sleep, is another factor in depriving prisoners of their sense of autonomy.
1: So if I'm York, being reminded that I'm not alone in the world and I have control over my destiny, I listen. Even if the message potentially includes anti-Semitism and demonizing white people. Do you think Dwight York's conversion came from this need for racial self-esteem and improvement?
0: Maybe. I think it's accurate to say that York, like many black people in the 60s and today, felt his life had been negatively influenced by racism. Remember, York came of age during the civil rights movement. He was nine during the Montgomery bus boycott, 12 when the Little Rock Central High School was desegregated, and 16 when the Freedom Rides began. The year he and Dorothy were married, 1963, civil rights activist Medgar Evers was assassinated. So the NOI's teachings may have made a lot of sense to York, given the climate. And they likely appealed to York's desire to have control over his life. But remember the narcissism we talked about earlier? The NOI may have just reinforced a belief that it wasn't his poor decisions that got him where he was. It was someone else's fault.
1: York was paroled in 1967. He returned to society at a tumultuous time. The Vietnam War was escalating into an endless campaign of death. Women were demanding equal rights and tried to pass a constitutional amendment ensuring that campus protests revved up.
0: A year after York's release, the Civil Rights Movement struggled to find its footing after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968. People and its successor, the Black Liberation Movement, rejected King's nonviolence tactics and goal of racial integration.
1: We have to retaliate for the death of our leaders. Groups like the Black Panthers adopted Malcolm X's by any means necessary mantra and armed themselves for their cause. revolution has come. Okay. It's time to pick up the gun. Okay. You will not be able to stay home, brother, because the revolution will not be televised.
0: Dwight York saw an opportunity in this uprising.
1: Although he found his spiritual home at the more mainstream Sunni Islamic mission of America in New York City, York was still involved with the NOI.
0: With a prison record, York had trouble finding a permanent job. He made money selling incense, oils, and publications for the NOI. Seeing how much the NOI profited inspired York to sell his own pamphlets, which he called scrolls. They were mostly regurgitated ideologies from the NOI and other groups.
1: The scrolls, popular amongst people who wanted some light reading for the subway ride, could be cheaply made and were about the size of a paperback book.
0: Plus, paperbacks, which became popular during World War II because soldiers could tuck them into uniform pockets, were still used by men sent to Vietnam.
1: This was a target demographic for York, because there were many black men who returned from Vietnam jaded by war to neighborhoods that lacked resources and had rampant discrimination in housing and jobs. They needed something and someone to believe in.
0: Despite the fact his scrolls parroted the NOI, York built up a following with his scrolls. In 1968, he named the group Ansar Pure Sufi, which combined the Sufi Islam belief that people can reach Allah's divine presence while on earth, with the NOI's teachings of black self-worth and economic self-sufficiency. He and his Dorothy shared their apartment with his followers.
1: The next year, in 1969, York changed the name to the Nubian Islamic Hebrews. His followers called him Imam Isa.
0: Then, in the summer of 1973, York took a trip to Sudan and returned to Brooklyn with a new plan.
1: He changed the name of his group to Ansaru Allah Community, a combination of Judaism, Nation of Islam teachings, the Sudanese Mahdi movement, And the NOI Splinter Group, the Nation of Gods and Earths, which is commonly called the Five Percenters.
0: We're already familiar with the first two, but let's dig into the others. Remember York's story of his mother's affair with Sudanese royalty? That was just a means for York to proclaim himself the grandson of Mohammed Ahmad, the 19th century Sudanese revolutionary who led an uprising against colonial British-Egyptian rule.
1: Muhammad Ahmad was also a religious leader who proclaimed himself the al-Mahdi, the rightly guided one, according to the Encyclopedia of Islam. His title referred to the Islamic hadith predicting a savior, the Mahdi, who would rid the world of evil.
0: Although the belief in the Mahdi crosses both Shia and Sunni Muslims, they do not believe that the Mahdi has arrived, and therefore Muhammad Ahmad could not possibly be the savior. In most Muslim countries, Mahdi Islam is considered a cult and outlawed.
1: Its practitioners are persecuted. The 5%ers are also obscure. Founded by Clarence 13X, a former student of Malcolm X's, who was excommunicated from the NOI shortly after Malcolm's assassination, they believe most of the world, 95% to be exact, is asleep. Meaning those people are not aware of the corruption and suffering going on. The remaining 5% are woke.
0: The Mahdi and Five Percenter influences reinforced York's authority as a rightful leader, the one to awake black people from their great sleep. He planted himself firmly on the side of outsiders, convincing his growing band of followers that he was the only one who truly cared about them.
1: Remember, this was a time where society is being uprooted. When the civil rights movement collapsed, it created a power vacuum. People were looking for answers whether it was from the Panthers or someone like Dwight York.
0: It's interesting you use the term power vacuum, Greg. The five percenters split from Nation of Islam, which branched off from the Moorish Science Temple in the 1930s, York latched on to the stragglers left behind with each group's fragmentation, presenting himself as the answer to their problems. But instead, this was just another way for him to manipulate people who were lost in the world and in
1: themselves. York sought out weaknesses, and it's no wonder he'd later choose Bushwick, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, as the Ansaru Ala community's home. The neighborhood wasn't just lost, it was going up in flames.
0: We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network.
1: And now, let's continue our story.
0: When Dwight York bought his mosque, the working class Brooklyn neighborhood of Bushwick was in a period of turmoil. The neighborhood was riddled with crime, with 4,500 robberies and burglaries in 1971 alone.
1: Property values dropped, and landlords who couldn't sell properties resorted to arson to collect insurance. In 1972, up to 500 buildings were uninhabited, making it easy for someone with cash to get cheap real estate
0: someone like Dwight York who bought a building for the Ansaru Alla community's mosque in 1973
1: and then a citywide blackout in 1977 that lasted from July 13th to July 14th came at the worst possible time. The New York Times wrote upon the blackout's 20th anniversary. It was a summer when it truly looked as though New York might have had it. A deranged serial killer known as Son of Sam filled people with terror. A physical crisis tore away relentlessly at city services, and now rioters, warped by greed and unfocused anger, were ripping apart their own neighborhoods. There's no rumble of a subway, but at every corner a loud honking of horns from motorists at intersections with no traffic lights. And any person passed on the sidewalk now is passed with your heart pounding and your fists clenched. In a night of rioting, residents looted 134 stores and burned dozens of other buildings. The damage set the neighborhood's growth back decades. By the 1980s, 45% of Bushwick lived below the poverty level.
0: Dwight York entered a neighborhood that was both desperate and needing a means to channel its anger at the city government's ineptitude.
1: In the late 60s and early 70s, then-Mayor John Lindsay had turned to black community organizations for help. He created the Urban League, which supported the Five Percenters. The mayor leaned on leader Clarence 13X to ease tensions between black and Jewish residents and to deter rioting in Harlem after King's assassination.
0: York's Ansarallah community was also seen as a helpful tool When Ed Koch became mayor of New York in 1978, he praised York for his security team. The Mujahad, or the Sword of Islam, modeled after the NOI's own task force, the Fruit of Islam. The Mujahad helped fight crime by protecting stores from shoplifters and robberies.
1: They also busted up drug deals and forced dealers to move away from the mosques' neighboring streets. York and the AAC were seen as vigilante superheroes. And his supporters ate it up. They saw these actions as York backing up his words. And the co-signing of the AAC by the city's political elite reinforced their beliefs that they were following the chosen one.
0: A true salesman, York knew how to turn on and turn off the charm. This extended to the AAC's Mujahad. At the same time they received mayoral commendations, the Mujahad was also an intimidating force in the neighborhood.
1: In addition to protecting his various mosques and buildings, the Mujahad also forced neighborhood businesses into paying them for security. People who resisted were intimidated into signing mafia-style security contracts. Or worse.
0: The Mujahad on several occasions burned down the businesses that refused security. York was then able to buy the real estate for practically nothing.
1: Anyone who stood in their way, including ex-members who criticized York, became targets. Mujahid enforcer Roy Savage was connected to a 1979 murder of a York detractor. He eventually went to prison in 1983 for the murder of two women.
0: And even as York utilized the Mujahid to intimidate businesses, his number of followers continued to grow, especially after the death of NOI leader Elijah Muhammad in 1975 Muhammad's successor, son Varis, wanted to move the group to a mainstream Sufi branch of Islam, and people
1: jumped ship and swam to York. With money coming in from his followers' street sales and welfare checks, York was able to buy about 20 more apartment buildings, converting them into homes for 500 of his followers.
0: But in the midst of this expansion, York suffered a setback. His eldest daughter of the six children he had with wife Dorothy, died at just 8 years old. According to his son Jacob York, who was born in 1974, York became obsessed with a drug dealer neighbor who had a daughter about the same age as the one he lost. He questioned why God would take his and save the criminals. His faith wrecked, York elevated himself to deity level, a God complex. When narcissists like York can't control themselves, can't protect the safety of their own family, they react by controlling the people around them. York went into overdrive, Jacob said, pushing his followers to make more money as a shield for his own feelings of inadequacy.
1: Although he had followers selling his scrolls, even during his early street preaching days, he began instituting daily quotas as high as $100 a day, running the Ansaru ala community like a multi-level marketing company, a pyramid scheme.
0: Another difference between pure Sufism and the new AAC was the embrace of polygamy. When York converted to Mahdiism, he adopted more conservative Islam traditions to appeal to those potential members. This included polygamy.
1: In Hathrat Fatima Part 2, York wrote that a man should have four wives, domestic, companion, educated, and cultured. The domestic wife did the cooking and household chores. The companion listened to the husband's problems. The educated wife advised him and educated the children. And the cultured wife created money-making opportunities and had sex with the husband.
0: Jacob claimed his mother, Dorothy, didn't mind York marrying other women. For one, she was a more faithful Muslim than his father, having converted to Islam before York. Polygamy, as described in the Quran, wasn't out of the ordinary to her. And secondly, she believed polygamy actually gave her more power and agency. As the senior wife, she ran his business and the money. The other wives deferred to her.
1: Her consent given, York began adding to his family. In 1979, he went to Sudan to marry a woman by the name of Fatima bint Sanuzi, whose father claimed to be a descendant of the prophet Muhammad.
0: He wanted more wives, not just for his own sexual pleasure, but to also gain more members. When he learned of black Muslims in Trinidad who felt ostracized by the majority Indian Islamic community, York reached out to them to recruit them to the AAC. To prove his commitment to the Trinidadian community, he married a Trinidadian woman.
1: York also poached wives from his own members, who numbered as high as 3,000 in New York alone by the end of the 1970s. He had men and women sleep in separate dorms even if they were married couples. They had to have permission to see each other or have sexual relations. York, on the other hand, did not. He often coerced married women in the AAC into sex, and they became his concubines.
0: It was difficult for the husbands to resist York for several reasons. For one, York began to redefine what it meant to be married. He claimed that marriages performed before AAC in secular or dunya, society, were not actually real. Even if the marriages in question were performed in Islamic tradition, York would claim that because they followed a false Islam, their marriage shouldn't be recognized. By 1980, York stopped performing marriage ceremonies entirely.
1: Another reason was upon entering the AAC, members had to turn over their worldly possessions and cut off all outsiders, whom York called kafirs.
0: As Rosabeth Moss Cantor identified in her book, Commitment and Community, Utopias in Sociological Perspective, York's tactics were typical commitment mechanisms designed to make followers feel isolated, both physically and psychologically. Many people didn't leave because they feared being separated from their only remaining family. They also had to depend on York for everything, so it's natural that they came to see him as their savior.
1: At the height of the AAC, he had upwards of 50 wives, who lived in adjoining apartments to the one Dorothy, York, and their children lived in.
0: York also wanted more children in the cult because he made money from welfare fraud. He encouraged his members to procreate and file for welfare, and he confiscated their government checks each month.
1: With this fortune, York began to buy more of the cheap real estate in Brooklyn. He also built mosques in other cities, including Baltimore, Atlanta, and Detroit, and internationally in Canada, Jamaica, and the U.K.
0: In yet another example of how York utilized his cult to promote his own interests, he used the cult's profits to jumpstart his music career. In the late 70s, he founded two record companies, Passion and York Productions. In addition to solo records like the song that opened this episode, York also formed an R&B funk band called Passion.
1: Passion's biggest hit was 1985's Don't Stop My Love.
0: Despite the name, York claimed to his followers that he wasn't actually passionate about music. He told his followers that music was a means to spread his influence by tapping into the world of celebrities and entertainers. By ingratiating himself into their circle, he'd make the AAC the epitome of cool.
1: York found inspiration in musicians like jazz artist Sun Ra and his Cosmic Orchestra, who gave York the blueprint for blurring the lines. Sun Ra preached a Gnostic philosophy that combined many ideologies, including Black nationalism and Afrofuturism.
0: Afrofuturism is a philosophical concept and cultural aesthetic that analyzes the experiences of Black people in the past and present by contrasting them with a science fiction idea of the future. In the 70s and 80s, it spread across artistic expressions.
1: They include the music collective Parliament Funkadelic, whose 1975 album Mothership Connection used funk and soul to explore the concept of black people in outer space. And writer Octavia Butler, whose 1979 novel Kindred, tells the story of a black heroine sucked into a time warp that tosses her back and forth between 1970s Southern California and the antebellum South.
0: Sun Ra himself sang songs that used aliens as a metaphor for life as a black man in America, a theme carried out in the literal sense in the 1984 cult sci-fi film The Brother from Another Planet.
1: York's mixing of music and ideology also came during the birth of a new genre, hip-hop.
0: York influenced and produced music for groups like the South Bronx-bred Africa Bambada, whose own sect, the Zulu Nation, outlined a map for music as a way of life. Bambada described the four pillars of hip-hop, emceeing, DJing, breakdancing, and making graffiti art to spread the message of a positive culture. Now, I must mention that Bambada has also recently been accused of sexually abusing boys in the Zulu nation. But in the late 70s and early 80s, his new art movement, hip hop, was seen as an alternative to gang violence. Instead of fighting, rivals gathered at neighborhood block parties to battle through rap verses or breakdancing. It united the community.
1: It was more competition for York. Rappers used storytelling to depict the realities of their neighborhoods and give their fans some hope. Yet York felt threatened by their message.
0: I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes it makes me wonder how I keep from going under.
1: York started to incorporate rap elements into his teachings. Sundays were now set aside for question-and-answer sessions, where a speaker, a propagator, would spit knowledge, rapping back and forth with members in a rhythmic catechism.
0: York turned the wordplay of rappers, the technique they used to twist words into double meanings and metaphors, into a new language that would later be known as nubic.
1: Take the word realize. A propagator might ask, what does that mean?
0: A member would then reply, to discover something. The propagator would then ask, how do you discover something?
1: With your eyes, would be the reply. So then to realize is to use your real eyes. You're awake. Woke.
0: So the propagator then asks, when you're not woke, can you see the lies of the world? The resounding answer is, of course, no.
1: And the propagator finishes with, therefore, to realize something is to use your real eyes to detect real lies.
0: These question-and-answer sessions helped York tap into a younger base.
1: The money was rolling in, but York was still frustrated by his lack of music stardom.
0: According to the Nuwabian Nation, Black Spirituality and State Control, York's son, Jacob, said of his father, quote, Many artists came through his passion studio, and he helped promote careers. But as soon as they became more successful than he was, he dumped them and would turn to someone else. End quote. York wanted to be a rock star, hobnobbing with the rich and famous. And he wanted to imitate their luxurious lifestyle as well. In
1: 1983, he built a camp in upstate Sullivan County, New York, called Camp Jazir Abba. It conveniently included a mansion for York.
0: Yet another example of York using his own cult for financial gain.
1: York gave control of day-to-day business to Dorothy, along with other wives and concubines. She actually ran the AAC's various businesses in the neighborhood.
0: Dorothy created a secret college fund for AAC children. It wasn't enough for her to keep the mosque's Brooklyn neighborhood drug-free and the kids off the street. She wanted to give them opportunities she and York didn't have and tried to hide the Children's College Fund from York.
1: Unfortunately, one of York's younger wives, wanting to curry favor, revealed Dorothy's secret. And when he found out about the fund, he took back control of the business operations from Dorothy. Using the college fund for real estate, he took the money from the fund to renovate Camp Jazeer.
0: It was yet another example of York's selfishness and greed. And for Dorothy, it was the last straw. Enraged with his decision to take money meant for the children, Dorothy left the cult in 1990, taking Jacob, who was 16, and his younger siblings with her.
1: Jacob was saddened by the departure. The York he knew at that time was a loving father who spoiled his children, taking them to the zoo, museums, and on expensive trips overseas.
0: Also in the early 90s, the FBI began to take note of York and his Mujahad Enforcement Squad. An FBI report noted links between York's Mujahad and narcotics rackets and illegal gun sales.
1: The FBI documented numerous acquisitions of AK-47s and other automated weapons by cult members, and they decided to take a closer look at York's businesses.
0: Feeling the heat, York left his Brooklyn Mosque in 1992 for Camp Jazeer Abba in upstate New York. But Camp Jazeer Abba had turned into a money pit. The property was in disrepair. And it still wasn't far enough to escape FBI pressure.
1: He decided to go down south for a bit of southern hospitality.
0: York didn't realize he'd meet his match in a sleepy rural Georgian town.
1: Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. And now, back to Cults.
0: Eatonton, Georgia is a town in Putnam County with a population barely of 7,000, a number that hasn't changed since Dwight York bought the 475 acres of farmland to be his own American Mecca.
1: York proclaimed the new land he bought constituted a Native American reservation and changed the group's name to the Yamasee Native American Moors of the Creek Nation. York also changed his ancestry to fit his new story. Not only was he a descendant of a Sudanese legend, he was now also a Native American descendant of Pocahontas. The 150 people who followed him south started calling him Chief Black Eagle. But in 1996, when he was denied a permit to build an Indian casino, because there was no evidence he had Native ancestry, York switched gears. He changed his ancestry yet again.
0: He claimed that although he was a true son of Sudan, he was also a Yanin, an alien from a scientifically superior civilization. To explain the leap in origin, York said the black people who made up the ancient Nubian kingdom in Sudan, Sumer, and Egypt, originally came to Earth from outer space. Planet Risk, to be exact.
1: It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grovers Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton.
0: According to York scroll, man from planet Risk, a black astronaut came to Earth from Risk in the galaxy Ilion to colonize the planet. He predicted that on May 5th, 2000, eight years after arriving in Georgia, a select 144,000 chosen people would be beamed back to Ilion to escape the apocalypse. It's doubtful York actually believed this. Once again, he was trying to pull in as many people as possible, especially because he lost members during the move down south. Some became disillusioned with his tactics or were confused by the new Native American background that York invented for himself and the group. York needed to increase membership. In the early 90s with other UFO cults like Heaven's Gate, a new UFO origin story for the cult must have seemed appealing.
1: Well, that makes sense, because York needed to compete, and Risk and the Galaxy Illion were just new marketing ploys.
0: And let's not forget York's music idol, Sun Ra. Sun Ra also sang of a mothership coming to take black people away to freedom. This was York incorporating Afrofuturism, a concept that had spread in popularity as people looked toward the new millennium, unsure about life post-Y2K. To match his new Egyptian alien identity, York constructed two 40-foot pyramids on the new land in Eatonton, Georgia. They were set around an obelisk, a 10-foot ziggurat, and statues of Egyptian gods and goddesses. All of the structures were decorated with hieroglyphics and other obscure scribblings.
1: The pyramids were made from divot, a plastic stucco, for a sandstone effect. For this production design, York hired a design firm that specialized in Mardi Gras floats. It has a statue of a Sphinx. It has sculptures of American Indians posing, and some of the American Indians look like Malachi York himself, as if they were based on him, because they regard him as their master teacher, their savior.
0: A centerpiece of the compound was York's mansion. However, his followers lived in trailers. As is typical for a cult leader, York continued to maintain a better lifestyle than the followers who supported him.
1: York called the land Tamaray, or Egypt of the West. This group's new name? The United Nawabian Nation of Moors.
0: Although the pseudo-Egyptian look was a hit with the Nuwabian followers, York struck a nerve with his new neighbors.
1: At first, the native Tins found the pyramids humorous and visited the compound to check it out. They were soon met with hostility, but that was the least of the worries for Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills. Tamaray wasn't just a religious site. It was also a theme park with a nightclub called Ramsey's. At its height, Ramsey's drew in 1,000 to 1,500 people per weekend night with a $25 cover charge. For many people in the rural area who couldn't drive to Atlanta to party, Ramsey's was as good as it got.
0: Unfortunately, their fun came at a risk Zoning laws permitted Tamaray's grounds to be used only for agricultural or residential purposes. After hearing rumors of the club's existence in the spring of 1997, Sheriff Sills drove out to the compound to inspect it. He found a storage building that had been converted into a club. It was made out of flammable materials and had exposed wiring, a disaster waiting to happen.
1: The sheriff filed a court order to shut the club down but York ignored it. Sills then sued to padlock Club Ramses, but York countersued.
0: Instead of waiting for their day in court, York and the Nuwabians took to the streets in 1998. They claimed Sills and other town leadership only wanted to restrict construction because of the Nuwabians' race. They canvassed the town, handing out flyers, equating white people with the devil.
1: In 1999, the Nuwabians took out an ad in the local newspaper, designed like a Wild West Wanted poster. It offered a reward for information on the cult's enemies.
0: York even managed to ostracize black Eatonton citizens by trying to take over the local NAACP chapter. He wanted to use the organization to fight the county, legitimizing his claims of racism.
1: But the NAACP members resisted, and they were added to the Nuwabian hit list. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Nubians said of the Black Eatontons, the blacks here are so backward they just let the white man do anything he wants.
0: Because they alienated a segment of the population that could have helped them politically, the Nuwabians' campaign to replace Sheriff Sills with a pro-York candidate failed miserably, receiving less than 30 percent of the vote in 2000.
1: That's when things turned ugly. Unable to find influence with words or through the political system, York returned to his pattern of intimidation. Cult members hurtled rocks through the county attorney's law office. Shortly after, another official's tires were slashed. The police eventually arrested York's own spokesperson, Bernard Foster, for the crime.
0: York saw Sheriff Sills as another person questioning his authority, another person in his way. So again, York pushed himself to build support from both within and without the cult. Membership grew, with up to 400 Nuwabians living on the Tamaray compound, and another 2,000 living throughout Putnam County.
1: By this time, York had opened up stores like Holy Tabernacle Ministries and All Eyes on Egypt to sell Nuwabian-branded merchandise and books. They were profitable enough that York built a third $557,000 mansion in Athens, the home of the University of Georgia.
0: Not to mention the hall he brought in on Savior's Day, his birthday. Each year, thousands of Nuwabians traveled to Eatonton for their pilgrimage. Visitors had to pay a fee of $25 to enter Tamaray, the cost of their Nuwabian passport.
1: If they wanted to buy gifts or souvenirs, they had to use Nuwabian money. One U.S. dollar was worth approximately 10% more than the Tamaray bills. York pocketed the exchange rate.
0: One such Savior's Day in 1998 brought in half a million dollars, the cost of one of York's mansions.
1: The Nuwabians' actions also brought state and national attention. Al Sharpton visited Tamaray in 1999. In a speech, he said, the civil rights community will not sit by and allow the New audience to be targeted because people disagree with what they preach. The sheriff must deal with the letter of the law.
0: The same year Sharpton came to town, white supremacist Everett Leon Stout paid a visit. He was an associate of the Montana Freeman, the anti-government group who had its own standoff with the FBI in 1996.
1: A platoon of FBI agents was waiting. The FBI used two large passenger vans to take the members of the anti-government group to Billings, Montana. At least 10 of the 16 faced felony charges, including fraud and threatening public officials. Stout claimed to represent the New Ampians and further clogged up the Putnam County Courts with inflammatory lawsuits for harassment and other accusations. He soon left because he was a wanted man in Tennessee and his shenanigans in Eatonton brought the law on his tail.
0: But some of that attention wasn't so warmly welcomed by the Nuwabians. As soon as Stout left, another white supremacist paramilitary group came into town, calling themselves the Georgia Rangers. They said then-Governor Roy Barnes had sent them to investigate the Nuwabian situation.
1: Sheriff Sills, wanting to prevent a fight between the Nuwabians and the Rangers, arrested members of the group for impersonating law enforcement.
0: Finally, York agreed to testify in court. The date was a week before Savior's Day, and emotions were high. Nearly 5,000 Abians flew into the county for the festivities. About a quarter of them served as York's
1: personal guard, flanking
0: the county courthouse.
1: A storm brewed, metaphorically and physically. It was a rainy day. Camera crews
0: and other gawkers jockeyed for a view of the man who'd managed to stir up so much trouble.
1: And then a compromise was made. Well, sort of. Both sides of the suit told the waiting press that they'd reached a settlement. But in actuality, the lawsuit continued for several years, but more quietly, with less vandalism and fewer threats.
0: Things started to go back to normal. Well, as normal as twin 40-foot pyramids overlooking farmland can be.
1: York's predicted apocalypse date, May 5th, 2000, came and went without anyone ascending into heaven or getting beamed up to another planet— York pushed the apocalypse back three years.
0: The residents of Putnam County and Eatonton resigned themselves to the fact they'd just have to make nice with York and his followers.
1: But in 2001, Sheriff Sills received a letter that set Putnam County on fire once again. The legal fight between Putnam County and the Nuwabians had died down, but a whistle-blowing letter amped it back up. This letter detailed an extensive history of child molestation on York's part. Now, this wasn't the first time Sills had heard molestation rumors. Earlier in the zoning fight in 1998, he received anonymous letters detailing York's crimes, but Sills didn't have enough evidence to arrest York.
0: But this new letter, which he received in 2001, mapped a pattern of abuse going back at least a decade to York's time in Brooklyn, including the names of alleged victims.
1: Sills referred the letter to the FBI, which renewed their investigation into the Abians.
0: Later, in 2001, a new mass departure of Abians was instigated by York's son, Jacob. After leaving the cult, Jacob attended Columbia University, where he got into entertainment and party promotion for students. He later followed his father's footsteps into the music business, producing for the notorious BIG-affiliated group, Junior Mafia, Jacob became the manager of one of its members, rap queen Lil' Kim. But he
1: was still in touch with other ex-members of his father's cult. One such member informed him of the molestation rumors, including a victim Jacob knew very well, a childhood sweetheart. This ex-member showed Jacob a video of this girl, allegedly involved in a sexual act with his father, and this turned Jacob into his father's antagonist.
0: Jacob and his wife moved to Atlanta and opened a halfway house, smuggling women and children who wanted to leave Tamaray and encouraging them to tell their stories of abuse.
1: FBI agents interviewed 35 of York's victims. They determined he'd fathered at least 95 children, and possibly as many as 300.
0: Alongside Sheriff Sills, the FBI made plans to raid Tamaray, but with a sense of caution. Mistakes from the past weighed heavy on their minds.
1: The ashes of the cult ruins have cooled and authorities have located 40 bodies. Justice Department officials say three had bullet wounds to the head, raising more speculation of murders. That was the aftermath of Waco, and the FBI didn't want to repeat. Sheriff Sills and the FBI chose to wait until York and his senior wife, Kathy, left the compound to stay at his Athens home. That way, most of his security would travel with him, decreasing the likelihood of a shootout.
0: On May 7, 2002, 300 law enforcement members ascended on Tamaray after York and Kathy were seen driving away. Federal agents arrested them and surprised the maybe 80 members still on the compound.
1: Within two weeks, York was indicted on 120 counts that included 74 counts of child molestation. The more evidence came in, the higher those charges grew.
0: Although few of his alleged victims recanted, there was overwhelming testimony against him. For example, one woman testified she was sent to York's Camp Jazir to be molested when she was just six years old. The camp, she said, was just a space for children to be abused out of sight.
1: Another woman claimed cult members groomed children for the molestation, showing them pornography and participating in the abuse.
0: In 2003, York pled guilty in exchange for a 14-year prison term and probation.
1: If you understand you're charged with 40 counts of aggravated child molestation. If you could receive, receive a maximum sentence of 30 years in confinement for each count that you're charged with 34 counts of child molestation, that you could receive a maximum sentence of 20 years in confinement for each count, telling you the most and the least. you understand that? I accept your plea. But the presiding U.S. District Court judge later rejected the plea deal, saying it was too lenient.
0: York's case eventually went to trial in federal court in 2004, and he was found guilty on four counts of racketeering and six child molestation charges. He received a 135-year sentence.
1: The government evicted the Nuobians from Tamaray and took over the property.
0: And although York and his followers have attempted numerous appeals, none have been successful. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, he is currently called... Inmate 17911-054 at Florence Supermax facility in Colorado, the Alcatraz of the Rockies.
1: He's not scheduled to be released for over 100 years, but his followers still have hope that he'll return to them. The only question I can ask is, why? Join
0: us next week as we uncover the reasons why many of York's followers continue to believe in him. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults.
1: If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If
0: you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
0: Join us next Tuesday as we continue delving into the Nuwabian Nation as we focus on the psychological means behind their madness. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Morgan Collins and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.